0: Hi, it's Fraser here, and I've got a really exciting event to tell you about. The great Rod Little will be joining Spiked's editor, Brendan O'Neill, live in conversation over Zoom on the 15th of June. You can get access to this event for free if you become a Spiked supporter. Anyone who gives Spiked £5 or more per month or £50 or more per year is eligible to become a Spiked supporter. And if you don't already give to Spiked, why not start now? Become a Spiked supporter and claim your free ticket to our event with Rod Little and Brendan O'Neill today. Just go to spiked-online forward slash supporters to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm joined by Spiked's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the censorship of the lab leak theory, Freedom Day, the fall of Stonewall and a photo of Prince Philip. A team of international experts investigating the origins of COVID-19 have all but
1: dismissed a theory that the virus came from a lab.
2: US intelligence officials are now redoubling efforts to investigate the origins of COVID-19.
1: Facebook is lifting its ban on posts that claim COVID-19 was man-made or manufactured. Why did you dismiss the lab leak theory as credible?
0: So Facebook has reversed its policy on posts that suggest COVID may have been manufactured or leaked from a lab. The so-called lab leak theory was censored on social media as misinformation and widely dismissed by the mainstream media as a conspiracy theory. Now the Biden administration is not so sure things have changed.
2: Tom, what have you made of this? I think it's just the most clear-cut example we've had yet about how much free speech has been curtailed during the pandemic and on the issue of the pandemic itself. Because as you say, not only have Facebook reversed um, its previous decision that it would effectively censor the lab leak theory, but also you've got this response from experts in the US and across the West. You've got um, Joe Biden suggesting that the intelligence agencies should look more into this theory, despite the fact that for most of the past 18 months, this is something which has been censored by Silicon Valley, subject to kind of denunciation within scientific circles generally just kind of hushed over and presented as a conspiracy theory. And yet, when you look into the details of this, this is something which was obviously worth a look from the beginning. I mean, I hold my hands up saying this isn't something that I looked into a hell of a lot because, you know, you sense what the consensus was that this Mm. wasn't necessarily something that was worth looking into. But really, there are these two theories as to where coronavirus came from. Either it was zoonotic disease in the, in the lingo that liked SARS and MERS. It was something that started in bats. There was some sort of intermediary and then it leapt into humans. But there have been people from the off really who have been suggesting that first of all, they can find no evidence of that intermediary species. Second of all, there's this big coincidence of the fact that, uh, the city Wuhan in which this all started is. Uh, home to Asia's biggest lab study in coronaviruses and trying to accelerate them and trying to kind of push forward their evolution in order to examine them. And then, of course, there was also a lot of reasons to question the level of certainty that Mm. a lot of people had that this was just a conspiracy theory, that it was wrong. Obviously, you had the CCP who had a big interest in um, trying to crack down on this particular story. And then even some of the Western scientists who led an open letter in the Lancet denouncing this stuff had some interest in this form of research. So it was clearly worth a look. And yet for it seems like political factors, basically. Yeah. A lot of people in the expert class, and in politics more broadly, decided to just completely ignore it, because it was something associated with Trump, and because I think at the beginning of the pandemic, you had experts who felt the need, I think, to operate with a high level of certainty, even in very uncertain times, because they were just worried what letting debate about these issues let rip amongst the population could lead to. And because of that, we've ended up here. And it's just remarkable that there's from Facebook or for anyone else, no real acknowledgement really that they have actively played a role in suppressing what is a very, very important debate to be had, whatever the truth turns out to be.
0: Yeah. And I mean, doesn't this show the inherent problem with labeling certain ideas, certain arguments as as misinformation or disinformation, Hmm. and then, you know, deciding that therefore they have to be censored?
1: Any fool can tell you that there's a massive difference between Going along with Trump saying this is the Wuhan virus and actually investigating, as Tom says, something that might be, you know, not just a credible explanation for where this comes from, but central to understanding how we beat it. I mean, you, it makes you ask loads of questions, but if we knew, if this is true, and I mean, there's something in me that says, it's a bit suspect that suddenly it becomes credible just as long as Joe Biden says it is. Mm. And that, you know, that tells you a lot about where Facebook is taking its you know political cues from in terms of what it decides to censor and what it decides to allow. But I mean, you know, the whole nature of this virus has been that it has been elusive, that we don't know anything about it. And the idea that you would, you know, we keep getting told, follow the science, have a scientific approach. And yet you find out that so much has been kept outside of debate, outside of investigation for political reasons. You know, okay, you don't want people to start going around uh, doing the Trump line and, and having sort of, you know, a prejudice towards certain groups of people, Chinese people, but there's an incredibly low view of the public to think that automatically people would go down that route. The other thing with Facebook is that, I mean, in terms of the harm that would be caused all the harm that would be prevented by uh, stopping this kind of quote-unquote disinformation. You have to ask, did they ban the European Union when they were going on about AstraZeneca and scaremongering around that? Did Even though that, in terms of harm caused, we can see the effects of that in terms of the vaccine rollout across Europe. I mean, they pick and choose what they think is disinformation and what they think isn't. Yeah. When it comes to the actual actual threats to public health and public debate, The EU did far worse than any kind of discussion about this lab leak.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it does clearly seem to be a political kind of term, misinformation, disinformation. I mean, if you think about some of the things that have been, you know, labelled this way over the course of the pandemic, as well as this theory, you know, YouTube essentially equated anything that went against the WHO advice with misinformation the who sets the standard of correct science but obviously you know they've flip-flopped on all kinds of issues from masks to lockdown to to everything you know articles that have challenged the efficacy of masks even so- when citing randomized control trials have been labeled disinformation by facebook you know lots of people who have questioned the lockdown have been similarly kind of castigated i mean this clearly just means things we disagree with, things the political establishment disagrees with.
2: Yeah, it's like any form of censorship where people try to kind of compartmentalise it and make it seem more acceptable in different situations. So you see that with hate speech. Obviously, everyone gets hate speech, but then you have to ask the question, who decides what hate speech is? Hmm. It's very similar with misinformation, which is to say that what might seem implausible, cranky, out there one day could turn out to be the cast iron truth. You don't know. It's through open inquiry and debate that you work out what is true. This is so basic. But I think because of that mass panic or because of that elite panic, I should say at the start of the pandemic, you know, the World Health Organization talking about an infodemic yeah. Facebook thing that they had to step up to the plate in relation to basically ruling on what is and isn't true, which even with all of the censorship that was going on on social media up until that point, was something they were a bit wary of. Um, they were it was, they knew that they were kind of crossing a Rubicon when they went into that kind of area. But what we've seen really, and what is so terrifying, is that as a result of all of that, there's just been a really explicit fusion of the power of big tech globalist organisations like the World Health Organisation, et cetera, and the state in various Mm. different countries in enforcing a level of conformity. And that's really dangerous when you're in a situation where you need really open discussion about what's happening. How do we respond to it? How do we stop it happening again in the future? And just all of it was fueled by this prejudice, which is to say it's better almost to have a phony... Affected sense of certainty, yeah, because that's better than just letting all the idiots go on about things. It can only be negative, so it's just it's such a terrifying precedent. Also terrifying is that there's no even acceptance that these u-turns are taking place. either. Yeah. that's something yeah. that's also very dangerous. One
0: other dimension of this that we slightly touched on but haven't quite explored. It. I mean, one of the, it, it's strange because unfortunately, you expect a level of collaboration between the U.S. government and the tech giants. We've got used to that, especially with Joe Biden in the White House, but haven't they essentially unwittingly been helping the Chinese regime? in censoring this theory
1: mm, yeah but also it's like in terms of deciding what is and isn't a threat I mean the the whole nature of the people love in the West to point the finger at China and say look how authoritarian they are in certain aspects but as we've seen the experience of the pandemic is that lots of people have, are suddenly now looking at China with ro- and its system with rose-tinted glasses saying mm. well isn't it great that they can do things so quickly and be so authoritarian in a good way because oh, we're an emergency and you need authoritarianism in an emergency but when it comes to you know actually understanding understanding what happened. I mean, there was so, it was kind of common knowledge that right at the start of the pandemic, China wasn't allowing enough information to come out. It wasn't being honest about what was going on, in particular in Wuhan, and that's a problem. Yeah. But it always seems to me, in particular, Joe Biden, they love to set up bogeymen. And as much as Trump was a bogeyman himself, but the like, anti-vaxxers or 5Gers or tin hatters, the kind of the cranks, are always posited as much more of a threat than they really are. The experience of the vaccine rollout in the UK, for example, example, shows you that I think all of us were surprised to see that there was really hardly any levels of anti-vax and conspiracy theories. But by banning them and by suggesting that there's this kind of seething, bubbling misinformation swell underneath everything, what you're actually doing is making normal people say, hang on a minute, why are they banning this? Is there something I don't know? Is there something being hidden from me? That's how conspiracy theories Mm. grow. Yeah.
0: And let's talk a bit about the COVID situation in the UK. The 21st of June freedom day the date for that we all got kind of implanted in our heads for when the regulations will be scrapped has once again been thrown into doubt so some scientists are urging delay because of the spread of the indian variant of covid cabinet ministers are considering whether to delay another two weeks possibly even another month hasn't this kind of campaign against freedom day been going on since it was announced really oh
2: completely you know and that's one thing which i think almost regardless of the situation, there are always going to be voices saying that we need to be a little bit more cautious, because this is basically about how you approach this situation. Do you continue in this incredibly cautious, precautionary principle-like way for the terror of something that we don't know yet emerging, Mm. or, again, new variants, even beyond the Indian variant, et cetera, or the Delta or Kappa variant, as we're now supposed to refer to it, was always a kind of danger. It was the the question of the, the approach, because if you really look at the situation, it's quite clear that the vaccination programme has got us out of this. I mean, even yeah. if you look at places like Bolton, the situation there is stabilised. The um, extent of the outbreak there is very much concentrated on the, in the under-60s, who are obviously far less vulnerable to the virus but also less likely to have been vaccinated. So all of that is pretty clear. I think I'm right in saying in relation to hospital admissions, the trend nationally is below what the best case scenario was that SAGE presented for this particular time period. So all of that looks very positive. Um, As you said on the podcast last week, Fraser, if we were in this situation originally, somehow, Mm. (laughs) epidemiologically speaking, we wouldn't have these restrictions. Of course we wouldn't. People would say that was crazy. But the problem is, is that this kind of mode of governing, this incredibly cautious, this idea that it's, almost neither here nor there if our liberties are returned today or in two weeks time or six months time whatever that's what needs to get shifted Mm. because with the things we aren't we're never going to get rid of this coronavirus but what we need to get rid of is this way of thinking this way of governing this jettisoning of civil liberties and all the rest of it and that's obviously the key battle now it's got very little to do with the data and a lot to do with the politics of it and obviously you know as you've
0: suggested some people will say oh you've got the pub can invite people around Mm. (laughs) you know what's the problem what's what's the big deal
1: there was that real kind of complacency especially on twitter there's lots of quite prominent commentators who you know for the uh, entirety of the lockdown have been very much pro lockdown pro harder Mm. lockdowns were responding to the protests that happened over the weekend in central london where you know thousands and thousands of people came out to oppose lockdown and to call for a reopening Um, and these commentators were saying Why are these people, Mm. you know, criticizing lockdown? It's over you're like no it's not over just <laughs> because you can have your four friends round for a dinner party in your flat your that own, doesn't your
0: only four friends yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it,
1: it's not it's just this real blinkered approach to not understanding what actually has happened with the restrictions that's not simply about you know even though it's very important it's not simply about just being kept away from your close circle it's about venues not being able to reopen it's about things like social distancing I mean the most important date for most people is the 14th of June because that's when we'll find out from the government all the crucial things. So they might say, you know, please God, they do say that on the 21st of June we open. But they might say, mandated with tests, mandated with social distancing, Mm -hmm. masks indoors, which you know okay we can go to see live music again but we won't be able to stand next to anyone and we'll all have to wear masks so it's not normal mm. it's not the return to normal and i think the the funny thing is that you have all these ministers coming out in the same breath saying the vaccine rollout's brilliant we're so great we're so brilliant and they are the vaccine rollout has been uh, you know something to celebrate and then they say but we can't be complacent and, and you know we might have to extend the lockdown but that means that your that the vaccine rollout wasn't brilliant because you said all along that this was our ticket out of this thing. Yeah, and so they're undermining themselves all the time. And that mm. the most important thing is that that causes further uncertainty in people because they now. I've you know anecdotally spoken to loads of people who are saying. Oh yeah, but I got AstraZeneca, and I don't think it's as effective. Yeah. And it's just causing more fear when we should actually yeah. be saying the end is in sight. People should regain confidence to open up again.
0: And that's that's the thing. There, there's this refusal to let the sort of pandemic phase of this, the public health crisis phase of this, end. We know that there will be people will continue to die of coronavirus. That's not in doubt. You know, mm. there is, I mean, there are still handfuls of people dying every day at the, at the moment, but that's manageable. Mm. That's, ma- in, that's manageable in the way that we would normally deal with diseases. Was
1: well, it acceptable and risk? It's, 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 a, yes,
0: yeah. it's an acceptable risk. We know that for the vast majority of people, the vaccinations are going to break the link between getting infected and going to hospital and, and dying. But now, you know, there is this focus on, cases, you know, just purely infections. And this is not normal. This is not how we would approach any other disease.
2: And it's that point as well about, it's about this specific kind of phase, because we are basically under, if not in name, like a kind of extended state of emergency, Mm. really, in which all kinds of extraordinary things the government is allowed to do. It's allowed to give back and take away our liberties like that. It's allowed to shut down businesses like that. This isn't just about understandably, you know, people who run pubs and restaurants who know that they can't they can even break even, even given the current restrictions. It's not about the effects of that on the economy. It's the fact that for the past more than 18 months now, we've shifted into a situation in which society has been kind of turned on its head in relation to our civil liberties, in relation to the normal way in which health issues are approached, all the rest of it. And the longer that goes on, the more problematic it is. Just to suggest that, well, it's only a little bit more, misses the broader picture, which is that we've become a fundamentally different kind of society and we Mm. need to get out of that. Now, that was never going to end on June the 21st. It wasn't that they were going to then, you know, repeal the Coronavirus Act, get rid of all of the health regulations, all the rest of it, everything goes back to normal. It's quite clear that there's going to be a longer tail of all of this stuff into Mm. next year. The government's made that pretty much clear. But at the same time, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about getting back to normal. And the fact that people just see it as, oh, you'll be able to have a few more people around. What's the big deal? The fact that's even a discussion, that's the issue, if you see what I mean. And particularly given the good situation we're in, it's one that we shouldn't still be having at this point.
0: Spiked is producing more content than ever. And I know you want to keep up with all the fantastic articles, essays, podcasts, and interviews that we're publishing every day. If you never want to miss anything we do, make sure you sign up to our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spike team, usually Tom Slater or myself. To get all of that, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked Now. Now, back to the Spikes podcast. Equalities Minister Liz Truss has urged government departments to leave a diversity scheme run by the LGBT charity Stonewall. The Equality and Human Rights Commission and the Employment Dispute Service Arcus um, quit this Stonewall diversity champion scheme last week. Ella, what's... The big deal with Stonewall
1: the difficult thing is that when people see this story, they really equate Stonewall with every single lesbian gay bi transsexual person in the u k and so Stonewall has become this kind of catch all term for you know anything in relation to alternative views on sex and gender and so when they see Liz truss as saying that we 're not going to be involved with Stonewall anymore, they immediately jump to oh my God, the Tories want to implement, you know, legislate for only heterosexual interactions in this ridiculous way. The problem with what's gone on with Stonewall is actually quite tricky but important. Mm. So what they do as a charity is basically have a kind of a stamp that says that your organization or your government or whatever it is, your company, if they follow our rules and they have a a sort of person who liaises with us and you implement the policies that are in line with Stonewall's policies, then you get this stamp and everyone knows that you're a great organization and you can fly the pride flag and blah, blah, blah. A
2: diversity champion. (laughs) A diversity
1: champion. (laughs) But the problem with what Stonewall has done is, as we see with the case with the University of Essex, is that they've reinterpreted the law to further put restrictions, what we, what, for example, what people can and can't say about the issue of trans, what people can and can't say about gender, about pronouns, about all the kind of stuff that we've talked lots of times on this podcast. And so through that case of realizing that the stonewall is actually just making up rules about what constitutes a diversity champion. And more importantly, what rules can and can't be used to discipline staff members. Yeah then it's woken people up to the fact that this is not just simply an airy-fairy let's be nice to all the gays and lesbians and transsexual people. But this is actually a kind of a really, I think, a kind of a commercialized desire to clamp down on what debates people can have about gender and sex. You know, lots of people disagree with Stonewall. They're currently in a legal battle trying to get the LGB Alliance, which is an, another charity, mm-hmm. be stripped of its charitable status because it doesn't agree with them on some of the issues of trans—a debate that we know is seriously contentious and has pe- people on both sides. But it's the the real scandal of this is that commentary on Twitter and, and articles that have been written about it opposing this as a kind of reactionary, anti-progress, anti-freedom clamp down on this brilliant charity. When in actual fact, if you scratch the surface, with Stonewall wall you realize they are more interested in keeping a name for themselves in the world of gender and sex and most importantly interested in silencing any dissenting discussion about sex and gender
0: yeah I mean the Stonewall head Nancy Kelly recently compared gender critical feminist views which essentially boils down to the belief that there are distinct human sexes she compared that to anti-semitism so that's a kind of extreme view that this body holds and is having influence in the public sector and private sector yeah. and all kinds of bodies, Tom?
2: Well, that's exactly it. I mean, as Ella was saying, I mean, if Stonewall wants to advocate for these positions, gender self-ID, you know, enter single sex spaces, or they're completely entitled to do so. The problem is via this scheme, they are enforcing conformity effectively through as that Essex report suggested, a misleading view of what the existing law is, which has led to feminists being no-platformed and all the rest of it. And I think this attempt by people to present the government backlash against Stonewall, the discussion about this more broadly, as a kind of just anti-gay rights, anti-LGBT thing, is so slippery because anyone who's been paying attention to this discussion knows that the people who have been pushing back against... um not transgenderism, but this kind of more extreme trans ideology against the positions of Stonewall. It has come from within the LGBT community, 100% yeah. lesbian feminists, um, who many people will be aware of, some leading people who set up Stonewall, mm. uh, Simon Fanshawe, Matthew Paris, have very publicly broken with the organisation over this. There are even, believe it or not, some trans people who are very concerned about the way in which Transgender people in this country are effectively being put in the middle of a cultural that they didn't ask to be put into. Yeah. Um, you know, people are basically suggesting that sex-based rights have to be traded against trans rights in a way that is quite uncomfortable. This is not something that's just being led by a homophobic, transphobic Tory government. This is a debate that has really bubbled up from within that community itself because organisations like Stonewall have gone along with a very particular view of things. Which is quite clear does not represent the views of all the people they claim to be speaking on behalf of. That's what this is about, and it's just so slippery for people to pretend that it's anything else than that.
1: It's also incredibly kind of grubby and corporate. There's this particular row because the whole. The way in which the scheme that Stonewall runs is that you kind of have this, it's in, its superficial. So it's not yeah. actually about furthering rights for trans people, though that's how they phrase it. It's about corporates being able to put this kind of, you know, the the pink wash themselves. For uh, a fee. For a, for a fee. <laughs> and there's an article on Spike that looks at this, it, it, you know, the way in which... Stonewall changed from being historically a gay rights organization to then finding the cause of trans in the last 15 years because it, it was at crisis point in around 2014 and 15 where it, you know, had passed laws, it had been successful in its campaigns and suddenly it was this massive organization with lots of stuff that didn't have a cause which lots of charities have <laughs> this problem, where you you know you fundraise and you suddenly think, what are we going to do with all of this? And so there's a real kind of manufactured commercial aspect to this, which is really pushing away from the the realm of politics, where all of this has to be up for discussion. I know it's the like, favorite refrain of these kind of campaigners, in particular the more extreme trans activists, that you know my rights and my life is not up for debate. But if you are implementing policies that Say that there are certain things that staff members can and can't say, or certain yeah. things that staff members can and can't call each other. Then that is political, and that should be up for debate. Well,
0: you yeah, know, free speech is is the main casualty of this. I mean, not only yeah in the in the case of workers. I mean, one of the famous cases is Alison Bailey, who is a you know gender critical lawyer. She's a lesbian, and she is currently suing Stonewall, accusing them of playing a role in uh, kind of ousting her from her position. But also, I mean, you know, Stonewall has worked with the Crown Prosecution Service to produce, you know, guidance on what constitutes a hate crime. They put out this leaflet into schools that suggested that, you know, vigorous opposition to people in the using the toilets of the of the opposite sex could be a hate crime. Eventually it was withdrawn after after complaints. But you can see that really one of the main casualties is mm. is is free speech and, and free and open debate. Now speaking of which we should talk a bit about What's going on at King's College London? Quite a funny story. The library director at King's has been forced to give a grovelling apology for emailing around a photo of Prince Philip. Tom, can you explain this?
2: Not really. It sounds like something that, like we made up, you know, yeah. in a way, because it's just so <laughs> utterly ridiculous. So as you were saying, this, um, I think one of the deputy directors of the libraries there sent around this email after Prince Philip died with a photo of him opening one of their libraries a few years ago. Obviously, King's College London, pleasing a name <laughs> relationship with the monarchy. Philip was a governor there since the 50s, I think I'm right in saying. And it was quite a tepid, really sort of little commemoration email. But there was this big revolt from tellingly, I think, within the institution itself. So it was academics, it was people who run various different programs within the university structure, who said explicitly that they had been harmed by this image because of Philip's quote unquote his, you know, history of racist and sexist comments. Mm. And as a result of this, this grovelling apology had to be issued, which he also said that um this wasn't meant to commemorate him, which I thought was an interesting kind of aspect to this given the fact that it is King's College London. And it's really striking because on the one hand you think, can these people actually be serious? Yeah. I mean, do we genuinely believe that someone who actually has a high paid position at King's College London was so mortally offended and harmed by this email that Someone's this- over the age of ten. Exactly. Like if they if these people are being real, then they shouldn't work at university, they shouldn't leave the house. Mm. That's their life, unfortunately. They're too fragile for any interaction with in the world whatsoever. <laughs> so it is a bit of an act. But I think the reason you keep seeing these stories is because of the fact there's so little pushback within these institutions that even when something's this silly, it just is allowed to carry on. And I think mm. the reason people are attracted to do it, even in a situation that seems so trivial, is because it's like a flexing of the muscles in a way. It's just to suggest that you know we can do this almost. So it's hard to take seriously, but as ever, the ridiculousness of it Demonstrates how deep that sort of authoritarianism runs in these places. Ella, would you be upset
0: by a photo of Prince Philip? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the thing is, you don't, have, it's this really irritating aspect of uh, none of us around this table are a fan of the monarchy. And, you know, I can imagine a commemorative email to him from, from a librarian, me chuckling at it and being like, how silly. Yeah. But I mean, in the context of King's College London, maybe not. But just the fact that it's a librarian, this, you can, you have this Trouble image makers. of this. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> And and being sort of slapped down by these pompous, you know, as academics. There's a kind of hierarchy within it that makes me really uncomfortable. But also there's this, this sense today that we are still living in a poisonous society and that even the most innocuous things like a photo of someone who once said something would be the same as... Someone racially abusing you to the point in which you had to ban it is that it makes you think these people have never been outside and never been in an altercation, never been slapped. Yeah. It's like, wh- have you never had any pain in your life that yeah. you can't relativize this and see that this is really not something you should be getting upset about? And also be embarrassed. This is, I think you linked to this in your article in The Spectator, Tom, about the Cambridge snitching website yeah. that we talked about last week, I think it was. It's like, be embarrassed to be a kind of a snitch or a complainer, yeah. a moaner all the time. That you would send an email to make someone feel bad mm. if you got that much of a problem with it go down to the library and have a debate with her about prince philip
2: yeah the point is to take offense really yeah. in a way you know like what the thing that you're taking offense at is almost doesn't matter because you know this bloke was a pushing 100 years old aristocrat of course yeah. he said some dodgy things <laughs> in the past. Like, this is just obvious to anyone everyone knew this but at the same time it's almost like the reason that you just see this stuff time and time again over increasingly trivial issues is because that kind of behavior is incentivized. Yeah. That kind of behavior comes with results. People have to re- mm. apologize or get um, investigated or be sacked or whatever. And basically behaving like a massive baby all the time is how you gain status yeah. in these organizations. And the longer that goes on, the ridiculous stories like this are just going to continue to proliferate.
0: Thank you for listening to the Spiked podcast. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now.